Revelation chapter 11, please. We'll start in verse 14. <clears throat> Give me just a minute. i got to get rid of this peppermint that I stuck in my mouth right before I come up here. I wasn't thinking. A <clears throat> uh, couple of folks made comment, I'm wearing tennis shoes tonight instead of boots. My back kind of hurts. And I told some folks what happened yesterday while we was working here. I kind of fell off a ladder and uh, just jammed my back a little bit. It wasn't no big deal. The worst part of it, I broke the lid on my coffee cup, uh, which actually, that's what caused me to fall off the ladder to begin with. I was on the ladder, and I was trying to get a, a tie beam across on the hallway. I had my coffee. I took a drink. I set it up on one of the, right, the ceiling joists. And uh, then I was doing something. Oh, it's Goodwin's fault. That's what it is. Steve's fault. Uh, electrical wire, I was having to move, and I hit my coffee cup, and it started falling. So I jumped to grab my coffee cup, forgetting that I was on a ladder, and I'm not 25 years old, and I don't move as fast as I used to. And I come down off of it and just kind of jammed my, my legs. So I'm wearing tennis shoes tonight. That's one of the reasons. The other reasons, Marsha's not here. I don't have to listen to it. So... Uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I will. Nobody take a picture. I mean, I'm already not wearing a tie, so... Huh? Thanks, Michelle. I'm going to tell you, just what I need is some more women in my life that's, that's taking care of me. Uh, folks, tonight, we're going to look... This message tonight, the title of it is It Won't Be Long Now. And actually, the title of the message comes from a... A quote taken from a monkey. He got his, yeah, a monkey. He got his tail hung in some machinery, and it cut it off at the halfway point. He said, well, it won't be long now. Uh, <laughs> but when I say it won't be long now, we need to understand this portion of the book of Revelation, you, you can almost begin to feel the speed build up and begin to feel the heat starting to build up. We're about to enter into the last three and a half years of that seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. Now here in chapter 11, as I made a comment, I think this morning it's a transition or a turning point. Uh, I guess you could say it's a watershed chapter that divides the first half of the Tribulation into the second half of the Tribulation, or from the second half. Now remember, um, through all this, folks, first of all, there was the breaking of the seven seals. And with the breaking of the seven seals, there was the sounding of the seven trumpets. Those seven trumpets, remember, were divided into two groups. There was one group of four and then one group of three. The group of four trumpets were war trumpets. The group of three trumpets, the last three, were woe trumpets. And so we're now at the, the, the blowing of the seventh trumpet. We've entered into that third woe. This, now look at verse 14. It says, The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Now this trumpet and the sound of this trumpet it's going to carry us all the way through the entire second half of the Great Tribulation. Now remember, we, we read in chapter 10, verse 7, it said, In the days of the voice of, or the sounding of the seventh angel, when he shall <coughs> begin to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants, the prophets. So we're told, in the days 
of the sounding of that seven trumpet. So understand something. This sounding of the seven trumpet is not one blast that's over in just a moment's time, but instead it, it, it takes in a matter of time, a certain period of time. Uh, it goes over a period of time. The sound of the trumpet, and when you study this, you get the understanding that, that it covers the whole last three and a half years of the tribulation. It covers all that, uh, that transpires uh, during this terrible time. Now, I want you to always keep this in mind. I think it's been a while since I reminded you, so let me remind you again. The focus of this passage, just like the focus of the entire book of the Revelation, is not on the tribulation, but it's on the throne. Remember that. Always keep that in your mind. It's not on the sorrow that's approaching. It's about the Savior that's coming. Amen? Now, verses 17 and 18, I think they give us a summary of all that's going to take place during this three and a half year period. It's kind of like a, a, a capsule, if you will, or a box of all that's going to take place from chapters 12 on through chapter 20. The first thing I want you to see, look at verse 15. There's the shout of acclamation. I didn't give any... You guys don't have any handouts, do you? There's 60 of them laying over in the office. Uh, I forgot. We, we can get them. Yeah, if somebody don't mind going and getting them, I'm going to keep going. Y'all can catch up with me when you get your hand out. <clears throat> I knew I was forgetting something when we came in here. <clears throat> Never fails. Look at verse 15. Notice what it says. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices or great noise in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And look at the last line in that verse. That's the most important. And He shall reign forever and ever. Now, I love that verse of Scripture right there, because what you have is the book of Revelation in a nutshell, contained in one verse. And I'll say this, if you ever have problems as you're studying or reading through the book of the Revelation and you begin to lose your way in the maze of seals and trumpets and vials and all this that's going on, then what you need to do is make a beeline back to chapter 11, verse 15. Because in, again, in that one verse, you have the entire message of the book of Revelation. Actually, in that last line, and he shall reign forever and ever, you have the entire message and the thrust of the book of the Revelation. Now understand, uh, really the thrust of the verse, notice carefully the noun and the verb that's used. The noun is the word kingdoms. And actually, folks, in the King James, it reads kingdoms of this world, plural. But in the original Greek manuscript, it's not plural, it's singular. So instead of kingdoms, it says kingdom. You say, well, why is that important? Well, listen to me. In actuality, this world is only made up of one kingdom. Now, you and I look around. We see a dictatorship over here. We see a monarchy over here. Uh, we might see a, a democracy here, a republic here. <clears throat> but what we need to understand, when God looks at this world, He only sees one kingdom, a kingdom that is presently ruled by Satan. Now, the reason I say that, Jesus Himself said in John chapter 12, verse 31, He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be cast out. Thank you, brother. Now, he called Satan the prince of this world, and that word prince actually translates as ruler. Now, something that I like, uh, Jesus, it's interesting, I don't believe he could bring himself to call Satan a king. That's what a ruler was usually called, was a king. And I believe the reason that Jesus would not call Satan king of this world is because there's only one true king, and that's the Lord Jesus himself. 
Now, ever since Satan came into this world, keep in mind, he's had a master plan to unite this world into a single kingdom that he could rule over and that he could reign over. But all of his attempts have failed. And this final attempt is going to end in failure as well. The throne of this universe is fit for one person and one person only. That person is Jesus Christ. And no one may usurp that throne. No one will overthrow his rule and no one can take away his kingdom. Now, if you remember your history way back in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 11, Satan attempted at a city called Babel. He, he attempted to bring about a world society or a one world order which he could reign over and which he could exclude God from. Now, you remember the story. They First of all, they built a town which gave the people uh, political unity. Then they built the Tower of Babel, which gave them spiritual unity. And remember, they all had the same tongue, so they had cultural unity. But God had other plans. And God, He come down, He scattered the town, destroyed the tower, multiplied the tongues. Now, there is going to be one kingdom, but it's going to be ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Not Satan's kingdom. At one time, you remember in Jesus' life, Jesus was uh, led out to the wilderness and Satan tempted him. You remember the devil, it said, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time. And he said, Jesus, these are yours if you'll but kneel down and worship me. But Jesus wasn't interested in kingdoms. He was interested in the kingdom. And Jesus returned. It's going to be an answer to the prayer that we pray, the Lord's Prayer, which says, Thy kingdom come. But notice also, that's the noun. Notice the verb that's used, the way it's used. It says, are become. Now, you would have expected this to read something like, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord. But it's not written that way. The way this is written, and even you read it in the original language, the way it is written, it's written as if it's already done. It's a done deal. It's already happened. You say, how is that possible? Well, understand that this verse, this verse in verse 15 is a prophetic statement. Now let's recap the definition of prophecy. What is prophecy? Prophecy is history pre-written. Alright? I like the definition I wrote down here that another preacher had. He said prophecy is the future written as fact. Now I'm going to give you something here so I'm going to blow your mind but I know it's hard for us to grasp this. But you and I, we're waiting on prophecy to be fulfilled. But God, He doesn't wait on anything. In the mind of God, all prophecy has already been fulfilled. Now keep in mind, God, He doesn't see as we see. God sees from the very beginning of beginnings all the way through eternity, and He sees it all as one picture. So as far as God is concerned, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, Jesus is King. But He has not officially been crowned King by this universe. And He is yet to all officially usher in His kingdom. And when He does, what a glorious kingdom that's going to be. First off, it's going to be an indestructible kingdom. Because listen to Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. It says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Also, we read in Daniel chapter 6, verse 26. This is uh, King uh, Darius after God saved Daniel in the lion's den. 
They pulled Daniel out. King Darius, he makes a decree. He said, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, a steadfast, uh, steadfast and forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. So it's going to be an indestructible kingdom. But also, it's going to be an indivisible kingdom. I think it's written on there. If not, write this down. Zechariah 14. Verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. It shall be the Lord is one and His name one. So there will be one kingdom and there will be one king. It's not going to be a kingdom that, that there's going to have a co-regent. Or there will be, there'll be you know, a vice-regent. Or there will be two rulers. No, there will be one king. And it will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It will be Jesus Himself. It will also be an incorruptible kingdom. Back in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 3. It tells us how great are His signs and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. Again, the book of Daniel, chapter 7, 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. Now, that was a way of saying God and, and all that God, the throne of God, the majesty of God. The Son of Man, who do you think he's referencing? He's referencing Jesus Christ. And he said, He comes to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, I've said this before, but I want to remind you of it. Friend, when Jesus comes again, when he comes back, he's not coming to take sides, but he's coming to take over. It's his kingdom. He is the ruler. When he comes, the world is not going to be playing hail to the chief. When Jesus comes, the world's going to be crying out, all hail, the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. There's a shout of acclamation. But the second thing I want you to see is the song of adoration. When angel sounds, when that trumpet blows and the announcement's made that Jesus is going to exercise His right to rule and reign over this domain, at that moment all heaven breaks loose in praise and worship. The saints in heaven, they begin to sing a song. It's a song, it's a song of victory, but it's also a song of vengeance. And in each line of that song contains the future of this world. Look at the verses 16 through 17, first part of verse 17. First of all, we have the, under the song of adoration, we have the rejoicing of the saints. It says, And the four twenty elders which sat before God on their seats, actually that's on their thrones, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and are to come. <clears throat> now folks, remember, the twenty-four elders represent all the redeemed of all the ages. And notice they fall on their faces. Now, I don't know if you know this, but that phrase, fall on their faces, the only time that phrase is used in Scripture is when it speaks of a man worshiping God. That a man is going to fall on his face before God. At the very thought of Jesus, I mean the very mention of His name, the very acknowledgement of His reign on earth, heaven is moved to worship, to praise, to glorify, to magnify, and to edify the name of Jesus Christ. You know, i got to tell you, I cringe when I hear people how they refer to our great God at times. You know, you've heard people, and I've talked about this before, people will say, they'll get uh, receive a blessing of some kind, and they'll say, well, 
You know, uh, somebody up there must must like you. Somebody up there must love you. Or they'll say something like, well, you know, the man upstairs is really watching out for you. Let me explain something to you. I'm going to make it real clear. Our Lord is not a nameless somebody that we cannot know. He is not an ordinary man who has been raised to a higher power. He is the three-time thrice Holy God of Israel. He spoke this world into existence. And with His finger, or with a thought, He could wipe this universe out in the twinkling of an eye. I'm going to tell you right now, you show me how a man refers to God, how a man worships God, and how a man reverences God, and I'll tell you whether or not that man truly knows God or not. There was a group of men sitting... One day in a restaurant, and, and uh, one of the men, they were discussing, just, just talking. One of the guys said, hey, what do you think we would do if Alexander the Great walked into this room? One of the guys said, well, no doubt we stand to salute him as the greatest military leader the world's ever known. Somebody else said, well, what do you think we would do if, uh, you know, say, uh, Beethoven walked into this room? Another guy said, well, I believe that we would applaud him as the greatest music composer in the world. Somebody said, well, what about if, say, uh, Albert Einstein walked in? They said, well, there's no doubt we would acknowledge him uh, as the greatest scientific uh, mind that the world's ever known. And then somebody made a comment. They said, what do you think we'd do if Jesus Christ walked into this room? And one man there was a Christian without hesitation. He said, each one of us would fall on our faces before him. We would worship him and we would declare him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Another preacher wrote this, and I I agree with him. He said, I really believe if the church would fall on her face more, she would not be falling on her face so much. There's a rejoicing of the saints, but look at 17, the second part of verse 17. We see the reign of the Savior. It says, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and has reigned. So the saints in heaven, they're excited. Because Jesus is finally coming back to rule and to reign. I want to tell you, folks, listen to me. The only one who can save this sinking ship called planet Earth is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the more I live, the older I get, the more I'm convinced of this one thing. The world's only hope is Jesus. This world may not want Jesus, but this world needs Jesus. Historian H.G. Wells said once, now remember, he lived only one year into the nuclear age, but he did live long enough to see some things and say this. He said, for man in this world, there is no way out. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian dissident, the the man with a mighty intellect who was uh, stood against communism, he said this, it is too late to avoid a third world war. China's operational head of military uh, operations He spoke with one of our presidents a couple of presidents ago. And he said, mankind is indisputably headed for world war. And then he went on to say, this is beyond man's will. Albert Schweitzer said, man has lost the capacity to foresee and forestall. We will end by destroying the earth. Now folks, listen to me. I am not being an alarmist. I am being a realist. Our world is dying in a hell of bullets. It's drowning in a sea of drugs. It's decaying from the acid of immorality, despair, depression, destruction. It hovers over our land like a cloud. And I'm going to tell you, the answer that we need is not education. It's not reformation. It's not legislation. It's not politics. The answer that we need to set this world right is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I want you to notice verse 18, the first part of verse 18. Now we have the we had the, the reign of the Savior, the rejoicing of the saints. Now there's the rage of the sinner. Look at verse 18a. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come. Notice what causes, and this is amazing to me, what causes rejoicing in heaven causes anger and rage on earth. There's jubilation in heaven. There's judgment on earth. There's, there's a coronation taking place in heaven, but there's cursing on earth. There's worship in heaven, but there's woe taking place on earth. Now, why are the nations angry? Folks, it's simple. Uh, nothing's really changed. It's because they don't want God in their life. This world wants to do what it wants to do without any God to answer to. The psalmist put it this way. He said, why did, in Psalm 2, 1 through 3, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. They say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. But let me explain something to you. The anger of this world is going to be met and matched by the wrath of Almighty God. In fact, this world's going to discover that the wrath of man is no match for the wrath of God. The question you may remember was asked in Revelation 6, 17, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? The answer to that question is no one. No one stands before the wrath of a holy, righteous God. There are two Greek words that are used for anger or wrath in this passage. One word means a sudden outburst or rage, uh, but that's not the word used here. The word that's used here, orge, I believe is what it is in the Greek, uh, that's used for the wrath of God, it speaks of righteous indignation. So understand something. It's not that God, with His wrath, that He's throwing some holy temper tantrum. All right? It's not that He's pitching a fit. God is expressing His pent-up righteous indignation against the world that's filled with sin, iniquity, and rebellion against Him. He said, enough is enough. We're told it's going to also be a time of judgment. Look at verse 18 again. It says, in the time of the dead... That they should be judged. You know something? And, and I'm going to get a little off the, my notes here. But uh, uh, the missing note to a lot of preaching today is judgment. It's judgment. How many times in the last ten years have you heard a preacher preach and he's talked about judgment? That there's judgment coming. God's judgment. You know what? We're told today and have been for many years now. Of course, I didn't listen. I never was much about paying attention, I guess. Uh, but told and told, younger preachers are told and told, you got to preach on the love of God, not the wrath of God. You, you need to preach on the mercy of God, not the judgment of God. Let me explain something to you. Do you know why that's the trend of modern preaching? Because this world actually believes that there are only three stages to man's existence. They believe that man is born, that he lives, and that he dies. Friend, let me make it real clear to you. There are four stages of man's existence. He is born, he lives, he dies, and then there's judgment. And the Bible makes that clear. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it's appointed unto a man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And if a man of God is going to be true to the Word of God, he will preach the love of God for sinners, but the hate of God for the sin. He'll preach the God of mercy, but also preach the God of judgment. Now, I'm going to tell you, it thrills my soul to be able to stand before you and tell you how wonderful it is to rest in the hands of a loving God. Amen? But the Bible tells us in Hebrews 10, 31, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
Not only will it be a time of judgment, it will also be a time of destruction. Verse 18 again, the last line. And should destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, we're told back in Revelation 9, verse 11, we're told the name of the devil is uh, uh, Abaddon in the Hebrew. In the Greek, it's Apollyon. Now, the first name, Abaddon, it means destruction. Apollyon means destroyer. So Satan is the destroyer. And Satan, his desire always is to tear down everything God has built. But one day, the devil, the destroyer, his demons, his devotees, and all who have taken his side against the Lord Jesus Christ, is going, they're going to be destroyed. Those that destroyed the earth will be destroyed. You know, sometimes, and I've said this several times going through the book of the Revelation, it, it appears that, that uh, you know, that wrong is, going to, is winning, that, that evil is on the winning side, that Satan's got the upper hand. Maybe God's asleep at the wheel. But I want to tell you, throughout the Bible, it is taught, and it is taught very clearly that there's a payday someday. God will have the last laugh, and he, you know the old saying, he who laughs last, laughs best. Matter of fact, I think the book of Proverbs chapter 1 about verse 26 talks about wisdom's call, God's call for people to listen to Him. And He said, those that don't listen to me in that day when the calamity comes, I will scorn them. I'll laugh at them in derision. I heard about a truck driver who went, stopped in the truck stop to eat lunch one day. This old truck driver went in. He sat down there at the, the stool up the, the counter and ordered his burger. And he was minding his own business eating his burger, drinking a glass of tea, when all of a sudden there was a dozen motorcycle riders, a motorcycle gang, 12 of them, roared up in the parking lot. They got out, and of course they swaggered into this little diner, this little truck stop like they owned the place. And they saw this old truck driver sitting there on that stool by himself, and I guess they thought, well, he's an easy mark. So they went up there to him and began to harass him. One of them poured his glass of tea on him. The other one, you know, flipped some food at him. And then a couple of them got rough and shoved him around, shoved him off that stool. Well, that little truck driver, he got up, never said a word, brushed himself off, paid for his meal, and walked out. As he walked out, that leader of that biker gang looked at the owner. He said, that old boy ain't much of a man, is he? The owner, looking out the window, said, well, I don't know about that. He said, but I can tell you, he ain't much of a truck driver. Motorcycle guy said, why is that? He said, because he just run over 12 motorcycles out there in the parking lot. Listen to me, folks. At times, it may appear as if God and good are taking a beating, but in the end, they're going to win. I want you to see next, verse 18, again, the reward of the servant. It says, And that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name. And I love this, small and great. God's messengers, God's martyrs, and God's men, they're going to be rewarded for their faithfulness. They're going to be rewarded for their service. Everyone who has feared the name of God, both small and great, are going to be rewarded. Now, I love that phrase. Again, I love that phrase, small and great. You know what that means? What that verse is telling us, it's going to take another world to show who the great preachers really are. It's going to take another world to show who the great Christians really are. You know, there are men that I know that have been faithful for years and years in the preaching ministry. They have faithfully preached and taught God's Word week in, week out, Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday. They have faithfully served and ministered to their churches. Now, their churches may be small and they may be out in the country somewhere, but they've been faithful to do what God has called them to do. And never once 
had they cared about the accolades of the convention. Never once have they been together and offered the positions at the state level or the national level. And you know, most of the time, these guys, what they do, they do for a love of Jesus and the love of people and the love of the gospel because they don't get paid very much for it. I'm going to tell you something. God knows their name. Small and great, God's going to remember it. I want you to listen to me, child of God. Not one good work, not one good word, not one good witness will go unnoticed or unrewarded by our Heavenly Father. That's what this verse is telling us. Every work for Jesus, small or great, is going to be blessed. It's going to be rewarded. The last thing I want to call your attention to is the scene of affirmation that we have in verse 19. It says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in His temple the ark of His testament. That's the ark of the covenant. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Now, it's interesting to see this chapter, remember, it began with the temple here on earth. John was told, measure the temple. But it ends with the temple in heaven. And we're told that the temple was open. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the book of the Revelation, it's all about openings. Uh, heaven's door is open in chapter 4. Seals are open chapter 6 through 8. The abyss is open in chapter 9. The temple is open here in chapter 11. The tabernacle of testimony is open in chapter 15. Heaven's open in chapter 19. The books of judgment are opened in chapter 20. But here the temple is specifically opened so the Ark of the Covenant might be seen. Now why is that important? Why is it important that the Ark of the Covenant be observed? Let me try to explain it to you. To those readers familiar with the Old Testament, specifically Jewish readers, this would be a tremendous confirmation and affirmation of the love, guidance, and the providence of Almighty God. You say, why do you say that, preacher? Well, the people of Israel, now if you've studied their history, you remember they were to carry that ark everywhere they went. And they were to follow along behind it. And in that ark were the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. In that ark was Aaron's rod that budded, continued to, to bud and bloom. And in that ark was a golden pot of manna. Now, before I go any farther, let me go ahead and say this. I know there are people that want to argue that last point. Well, I'm just going to say read Hebrews 9.4. And remember that God's Word doesn't contradict itself. Okay? <clears throat> now, the ark... And all it contained, that's going to be great encouragement to God's people. And for good reason. And this is why. And I think it's on your hand. That first of all, the ark was a symbol of God's presence. The ark was a sign that God was present with His people. It was at the ark that Moses communed with God. But the ark's also a symbol of God's promise. The tablets of stone that are carried covenant, uh, the laws, the Ten Commandments, they represent the Word of God. And it represented the covenant of promise of God that He was going to take care of His people, that He was never going to forsake them. He was always going to defend them, and He was going to accomplish His purpose through them. But also the ark was a symbol of God's power. Aaron's rod uh, budded in that ark. The rod budding, folks, that was a picture, and I've heard it explained this way, of the power of God, how God could control life and death. God brings life out of death, thereby showing that He is sovereign over all of His creation. This is the other thing, the last thing. The ark was a symbol of God's provision. Uh, in that ark, again, was the golden pot of manna. Remember, that manna was a bread from heaven that was used to feed and sustain <coughs> the entire nation for 40 years while they were in their wilderness wandering, in the barren wilderness. Now, this is important because we read in verse 19. And there were lightnings and voices, thunderings and earthquake and great hail. 
Now, folks, I think we've come far enough in our study in Revelation. You understand from our previous studies, these things are symbols of the judgment and the wrath of God. Now, these are going to be very trying days for God's people who are here on earth at this time. But the vision of the ark would encourage God's people. It would motivate them to trust Him, to serve Him, to obey Him, regardless of the cost. And I think that we have to be reminded at times that we are to obey, serve, worship, trust Him, regardless of the cost. No matter what the storm is that we may face. Because, let me ask you something, Christian. Everybody going to face storms of life. But as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, isn't it great to know you face the storms of life anchored in the rock of ages? I heard a story one time about Charles Wesley, the brother of John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism. He was walking through the woods one day and a storm broke loose. It was a heavy rainstorm and lightning. <coughs> it was raining buckets, torrential rainstorm. And uh, he, he walked up under a tree and pulled his coat up around him. And as the lightning was flashing, he noticed up in the tree there was a group of little birds huddled together and shivering. And a bolt of lightning hit on the other side of that stream. And at that moment, one of those little birds, I guess he thought, I can't take no more. He come down out of that tree and he flew and landed on Wesley's shoulder. And then he said that little bird was trying to get in his jacket. So he opened his jacket. The little bird crawled in and he shut the jacket back. Now that, uh, that, so, that scene, it so moved Charles Wesley, he wrote a song. Maybe you've heard of it before. It goes like this. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the near waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O my Savior, hide till the storm of life is past. Safe to thy haven, guide me, O receive my soul at last. I'm going to close right here, folks. I'm going to tell you, I don't believe it's going to be much longer until Jesus comes again. You say, well, a preacher's been saying that for years and years and years. How long is a hundred years compared to eternity? Can you fathom that? I'm going to tell you, I say with John, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. I don't believe it's going to be too much longer, but until he comes, no matter what happens, no matter what takes place, although foes may assail us, they'll never prevail us because God's on the throne. Because as I said last week, in the end, Jesus wins. And if you ever doubt that, Look back at verse 15 one last time. Look at the last line of verse 15. He shall reign. Jesus shall reign forever and ever. That's a guarantee I can stand on. Would you bow your heads, please? Just a moment. We'll stand and have a time of invitation. Maybe you're here this evening. <clears throat> and perhaps you just need a little bit of encouragement tonight. That no matter what happens, God's in charge. And in the end, we know how it's going to work out. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to question. You know, so many times, so many times we get so wrapped up in the events of this world. And what's taking place in this world that we fail to realize the great truth that, you know what, this world is not our home. And one day, 
one day, this world, this universe, is all going to be sold out in the kingdom of our Lord and Savior. Now, that ought to bring you some encouragement. No matter what's going on in politics, no matter what wars are happening around the world, it doesn't change the fact that God's a sovereign God. Father, I pray tonight as we digest and take in your word that we have heard that we would do so with a joyful heart. We would do so with a thankful heart. God, knowing that uh, no matter what we may face, no matter what comes to pass, we belong to you. And Father, knowing that after it's all said and done, when the last trumpet is blown, when the last shot's fired, it's not going to change the fact that you're still in charge. You're still on the throne of this universe. And this world, the kingdom of this universe, belongs to you. Father, encourage us with that over the days that we face in the near future and things that are happening in the world around us. But also, I want to pray for those who are here tonight. They're not for sure that they're your child, that they belong to you. Father, I pray they'd understand that you can't face any storms without an anchor. And there's no anchor other than Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that those of us who know him, Father, I thank you that that your Bible, I believe, teaches us clearly that those of us that know him, we're not going to face this time. But there are others who will. And Father, we should be about the business of reaching others with the gospel, with your love, and telling them of your grace and the death of Jesus Christ for their sins. Father, I pray we'd be encouraged to do that. That we wouldn't be a church that sat on the sidelines, but that, Father, we would get into the fray, get into the battle. We'd be soldiers for you. In Christ's name, amen. If you stand, please.